Welcome, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of The Law of Self-Defense. We are live. Well, I'm live as I'm broadcasting this. Not sure if you'll be watching it live or as a pre-recorded show. Hopefully live. That's the most fun. For those who don't know, I am attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. So very much that is greatly, greatly appreciated. So today is going to be one of our platinum Q&A shows. So we have questions that have been sent in over time from our Law of Self-Defense Platinum members. That's our highest level of membership. They get a special Q&A form they can use to send questions directly to me. Uh, If they prefer, I answer those questions confidentially. Otherwise, we put them in the bin to be answered in these Platinum Q&A shows. And then, of course, the the replies are also emailed uh, directly to the Platinum member who submitted the question. So we're going to be going through a whole series of those today. I actually did a little prep for these questions today. Often I just take them on the fly, but uh, for some of these I have um, a little background work that I did to make sure I can provide comprehensive answers. I never know how many questions I'll get through because uh, we do have a time constraint of about an hour and that'll be the limit for us today. Then I have to run off to jujitsu. Today is a jujitsu day. Um, So uh, this will be a bifurcated show, a split show. So roughly the first half of the show is going to be uh, publicly streamed as it is being right now on YouTube, on Twitter, on Rumble, and of course to our Law of Self-Defense members. And then about halfway through, we're going to cut off the public stream. In fact, I'm setting my little alarm now and we'll continue with the rest of the show for just our Law of Self-Defense members. Now, If you're wondering, what's this whole deal with Law of Self-Defense membership? Do I have to be a member? Well, you have to be a member if you want to get our Law of Self-Defense members-only content. That should be self-explanatory. And there's quite a bit of that content. Just like half of today's show will be that content. During the live streams, at the end of each show, we typically read through the comments and questions from our Law of Self-Defense members on the member stream. Not from Rumble, not from Twitter, not from YouTube. Only the members get their questions and comments answered during the live shows. Members also get transcripts of every show that they can download or or just choose to read rather than watch lengthy video uh, of the kind we typically produce. Uh, We do content every week that's members-only content. The good news is that being a Law of Self-Defense member is dirt cheap. It's only about 99 cents. Well, it's only... You can get a two-week trial for 99 cents. Two weeks, unlimited members access, no constraints, just as if you were a longtime full-time member, 99 cents for two weeks at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. Do that right now and stay for the second half of the show. Hop over to the member stream. You'll be emailed instructions right away on how to do that. And uh, if you stay a member after the two-week trial, it's still dirt cheap. It's only about 33 cents a day, less than $10 a month, folks, to get this unbelievable level of self-defense law expertise. All of that is at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. Do it right now. Open up another tab on your browser. 99 cents, folks. I don't know why you're here if you don't think this stuff is worth 99 cents. Surely your time is worth more than that. But nevertheless, that's the offer we have for you. Lawselfdefense.com slash trial. All right. With that out of the way, because we are a time-constrained show today, let me jump into the formal launch of the show, and we'll get started on our Platinum Q&A.
said, <laughs> this is what you should have seen by the time that little musical instru- instrument was done. Intro was done. Platinum members Q&A. That's what we're covering today. So let me dive into the first of these. Let's see. Uh, this is from uh, Law Self-Defense Platinum member Jonathan. He asks, Andrew, I listened to your legal analysis of the prankster dumping apparent gasoline that was really water over a truck hood. So this was a prankster that would go up to occupied vehicles with a gasoline can that was actually filled with water, but he'd pour the apparent gasoline over the car, obviously threatening to set it on fire. Uh, Jonathan asks, you didn't answer what was to me the most obvious question. Was the old man's action of drawing a pistol, so one of the people this happened to drew a pistol, Keeping it pointed at the ground, a lawful action. Was he on safe legal ground in doing that? Or could he have been prosecuted? He never pointed the pistol at the bad guy, only at the ground. So, folks, the answer of could he have been prosecuted? The moment you're engaged in the use or threat of use of force against another person for the purpose of changing their mind, so they're aware that you're using or threatening to use force against them, you could be prosecuted. Threatening someone with force for the purpose of changing their mind checks all the boxes for criminal assault. And if you do it with a gun, it would be aggravated assault. An aggravated assault with a deadly weapon is good for 10 to 20 years in most jurisdictions, especially when you add the gun sentencing enhancement onto the crime. Now, of course, what you would do is you would say, well, normally, of course, you can't just walk down the street and threaten someone with a gun because that ought to be aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. But it wasn't a crime in my case because I did it with the legal justification of self-defense. I was facing an unlawful, imminent threat of deadly force harm. That's why I presented my gun to change that person's mind, which is what we do in self-defense, right? Stay back. I've got a gun. I'm prepared to defend myself. The trouble is it's not your decision whether or not your conduct qualifies as lawful self-defense. It's not your judgment that determines your legal fate. It's the judgment of other people. It's the judgment of police, prosecutors, judges, jurors who who may not have your interest at heart. Most of the cases I consult on are are law-abiding people who've never been in trouble with the law a day in their lives. They got scared, they pulled their gun, and they got charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. And suddenly they're looking at a decade or two in prison. They never fired a shot, never hurt anybody. But that conduct checks all the boxes for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon that you now have to justify as self-defense. And a prosecutor may look at that scenario and say, I think I can beat that claim of self-defense. He went to a gun and the evidence that he was facing a deadly force threat so that there was proportionality. It's weak. It's questionable. It's ambiguous. We have two narratives, right? The person who the person who you present the gun at or draw the gun because of, you think they're going to tell the police, well, that guy pointed a gun at me, but it, it was because I was trying to mug him. No, of course not. He's going to say, I was jogging through the neighborhood, minding my own business when this lunatic pulled the gun on me. So is, is that evidence that you committed aggravated assault with a deadly weapon inconsistent with self-defense? Yes, it is evidence. Everything is evidence, folks. Is it proof? Well, whether or not the evidence qualifies as proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is something that's going to be determined by other people. Whether that evidence is sufficient for probable cause to drag you into a trial that could cost you tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars with the risk of getting convicted, no matter how innocent you are, is the judgment call of other people. Whether that conduct is sufficient for your arrest, it's going to be made by whatever cops show up. And their judgment may not be the same as your judgment. 
So is there a risk you could be prosecuted? Yes. Yes, there's always a risk. As I say, the moment you go hands-on in that fight, and I would include in that the, the threat of force too, you've just incurred two risks you were not incurring a moment before, a risk of death, because that other person might pull their own gun. A, a bystander not involved in the confrontation might perceive what's happening and perceive you as being an unlawful deadly force aggressor. I see those cases all the time. The good guy pulls his gun, gets shot and killed by a well-intentioned bystander, by a cop who turns the corner. So th th these are the risks we're incurring, a greater than zero risk of dying in that fight and a greater than zero risk of going to prison for much of the rest of your life. That's it. The risk may be high, it may be low, but it's never zero. It's always more than zero. So I'm not a big fan of, of presenting a gun unless I believe the conditions have been met to actually use the gun not as a deterrent. Now, when I present the gun, it may, the cir circumstances may change. I may end up not needing to use it, and then I wouldn't. So I'm not suggesting if the gun comes out, you must shoot. That's not it at all. But I personally would be unlikely to present a gun unless I had the conditions necessary to actually fire the gun at, at whoever the aggressor was. Now, this has tactical implications, too, right? If it takes you a long time to present your gun, and by a long time, I mean like three, four seconds, well, that's a problem, right? Because you have to start acting earlier in the decision-making cycle then. Um, you, don't, you don't have the luxury of being patient, perhaps. If you can present your gun in a second, I know you can get a center mass shot at five yards, which is really not that hard to do, folks, if you practice. Well, then you may have the luxury of patience. If you carry your concealed firearm in such a way that it's not apparent, nobody would know it's concealed. Um, but nevertheless, you can present it quickly. Well, then you, you don't have to be threatening someone with a gun to try to deter them. You can use verbal commands. You can do a whole bunch of other things. And the gun doesn't have to come out unless it really needs to come out. And when it really needs to come out, you can do it proficiently. That would be That would be my recommendation. Now, there are a lot of prosecutors' offices that have these kind of informal rules about defensive display of guns. They'll say, uh, well, if you if you merely let the other person know you had a gun, we're not going to prosecute you for aggravated assault if you have anything resembling some kind of self-defense narrative. Um, if you put your hand on the gun, same thing. If you draw the gun but keep it pointed in a safe direction, maybe the same thing. If you point the gun, put the muzzle on the person, well, then if we have questions about your claim of self-defense, yeah, you, you could very well be charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. But none of these kind of gradations are in the law, folks. These are judgment calls by the prosecutor. He doesn't have to follow those guidelines if he doesn't feel like it. And maybe there's political reasons not to follow it. Maybe there's a racial disparity. Maybe the, the person you're pointing a gun at turns out to be a child. Children commit violent crimes all the time. Might you have to defend yourself with deadly force against someone who's 13 or 14 years old? Yeah, 13 and 14-year-olds kill a lot of people in America. But it provides the prosecutor with building blocks that they may, able to, they may believe they can sell favorably to a jury from that jurisdiction. Is the jury from that jurisdiction more likely to be your peers or the peers of the child you pointed a gun at? I mean, these are all... You know, I often say the law of self-defense is not complicated, right? Just five elements. 
in the black letter law of a claim of self-defense. By the way, you can get this little cheat sheet of the five elements of self-defense for free. Lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. It's just a PDF download. If you don't understand these, you can't possibly understand use of force law. So the black letter of the law is not complicated, but reality is complicated. The real world facts can be ambiguous, can be subject to interpretation. And of course, the, the drivers, political drivers, professional drivers, biases, opportunistic drivers of uh, prosecutors uh, can lead them to decisions that that a rational, objective prosecutor would say, now nah, this is not worth taking a trial. But but prosecutors often take cases to trial where they have little, no prospect for a conviction. But there's sufficient political capital to be made that they'll do it anyway. And they're free to do that. That's within their discretion. And then it's a win-win, right? Either they secure a conviction, in which case they can tell everyone, see, I was right all along. This person should have been prosecuted. The jury agreed with me. Or they failed to secure a conviction. The defendants acquitted, but they still gained political capital for having fought the good fight. I tried. I did my best against that horrible racist defendant. And it's just sometimes you just don't have the jury you need. Win-win. I would not want to put myself in a position where it's a win-win for the prosecutor, no matter what he does to bring me to trial, because then I know I'm going to trial, no matter what the merits of the case are. I would not want to put myself in that position unless there was genuinely no alternative. If I'm going to die, my wife is going to die, my kids are going to die, well, then you have to take the risk. But that's not a long list of reasons that that risk is worth taking. So, yeah, could he have been prosecuted? Sure. Could he have been convicted? Sure. Does he have a reasonable narrative of self-defense, especially since this was all caught on camera? Yeah, I think he does. And if he's a reasonable prosecutor he's dealing with, he's probably okay. But that's probably what, what else could he have done? And I'm not saying anyone should do this, right? You, you have to make your own decisions about what you're prepared to do. But, you know, say your car is unoccupied. You know there's nobody in it, and you're climbing into it, and this guy comes up and pours apparent gasoline all over your car. In this case, the old man got out of his truck and pulled his pistol and held it by his side. Turned out to be a prank. But what if it wasn't a prank? What if you could smell the gasoline? First of all, by the way, a lot of firearms, you discharge them. They'll ignite gasoline. I mean, you don't see it in the daytime, but you see these guns shoot at night. There's a there's a lot of flash coming out of them. Shoot that over a hood covered with gasoline fumes coming up. I don't know. But the old guy could have just simply walked away from his truck, right? Let it be burned. Try to hold the, the person who did this accountable lawfully. Call the police, that kind of thing. I'm not saying he should do that. You have a privilege to defend property. You have a privilege to defend your life. But I do encourage you to think about what you'd be prepared to do today before you find yourself subject to this kind of scenario. Okay, I forgot. I forgot. I need to write down timestamps for all this. Okay, so right now we are at, man, we are not going to get nearly through all these questions. Okay, next question is from, uh, didn't provide a name, which is fine. Platinum members can ask their questions anonymously. Uh, writes, I'd like to pan, I like to pan for gold at the river. People still do that in Colorado, by the way. I don't know where this is from, but, uh, I'm alone except for my dog. Some imagine that some goon shows up, tries to hurt me and I end up killing him in self-defense. I'm charged with murder. No one else was there. Now what? Now what? So let's presume from the start that you're actually going to report this killing. 
right? That's what the law would want you to do. Of course, no one else was there. Now, normally I caution people, be very careful. There's cameras everywhere. Uh, I, I'm almost inclined to, there's, you never know there's witnesses. Other people could be at the river. So if you just walk away and say, oh, I'm not going to talk about this to anybody, maybe it'll just go away. Maybe there were witnesses. Maybe there weren't. Maybe there's cameras, even game cameras on trees that caught what happened that the police are going to get. Maybe wherever you parked your car, uh, there's cameras there. Or someone noted, someone heard a gunshot and noted your license plate number. So the cops are going to get that. Then they're going to find you. They're going to look at you. They're going to match the description of some other witness. You, you never really know if no one's there or not, right? But presume you'll call 911 and they'll do an investigation and write a report and give it to the prosecutor. And of course, there's only one side of the story, right? The other guy's dead. It's only your side of the story. Does, does that mean you can't be prosecuted? No, because folks, there's always another side of the story. Even if there aren't cameras, even if there aren't witnesses, there's forensics evidence, right? So this is actually very reminiscent of a case that occurred some years ago in uh, Arizona. Uh, a guy, Harold Fish, Harold Fish was, uh, let me check, what was the year of this? 2004. So Harold Fish, he's 57 years old. Man, when I first read this case, I thought that guy was kind of old, and now he's a year younger than me. <laughs> he's 57 years old. He's hiking down a, a trail in the woods, not near people generally, and he encounters coming the other way up this trail, and it's a very narrow trail. It's very uh, steep on the side, so you're kind of stuck on the trail. And coming up the other way on the trail is uh, another dude, big dude, with a pack of dogs, unleashed dogs just running around, uh, aggressive dogs. And these dogs charge at Harold Fish in a very aggressive manner, sufficiently aggressive that Harold Fish uh, pulled a semi-automatic pistol, fired a warning shot into the ground. Didn't hit any of the dogs. Didn't want to hit any of the dogs. Was hoping the gunshot would scare the dogs away. Um, you know, and it's the kind of scenario where you may actually be able to get away with a warning shot in the sense that normally, like if you're in an urban setting or a community setting, anytime you fire a bullet, it's going someplace, right? Are you, are you committing an act of felony reckless endangerment by firing a warning shot? I think that's a pretty good argument most of the time. In the woods, firing into the dirt, eh, probably about as safe a warning shot as you could as you could ask for. But what actually happened is the, the other gentleman with these dogs, this huge guy, um, apparently, well, we'll never know because he died, but uh, apparently he must have believed that Harold Fish had shot his dog. He didn't like that. People who own dogs don't like it when you shoot their dogs. So Harold Fish charges, uh, sorry, the, the other gentleman charges at Harold Fish. Just charge like a bull, arms outstretched. Harold Fish is scared for his life. There's no way to get off the trail. He's 57. He's not outrunning this guy, much bigger, much younger than him. Plus, he's got the dog, the guy's dogs to worry about. He's definitely not outrunning them. So he makes a decision. He shoots this other gentleman in the chest. The pistol he's carrying is a 10 millimeter 1911 semi-automatic. It's basically a hunting caliber for pistols, a uh, 10 millimeter round, very powerful, uh, strikes the other gentleman in, in the chest and kills him. And Harold Fish puts his jacket over the guy, makes a kind of pillow, makes him as comfortable as possible, hikes off the trail and calls the police to get assistance for this guy to no avail. The guy dies. And uh, Harold Fish had no criminal record, typical law, self-defense type client. 
I mean, he wasn't one, but typical of, of the cases we work on. No criminal record, never been involved with the law a day in his life. And uh, the local uh, deputy sheriff who investigated the case says, no, this, this looks like lawful self-defense to him. He got taken off the case. That happens a lot. That hap- This happened in the George Zimmerman case, too. The, the lead detective on, on the Zimmerman case didn't believe that it was anything but self-defense. Uh, he not only got taken off the case, he got demoted from detective to patrolman. Ultimately, he died of drug addiction. And I'm sure the pressures of that Zimmerman case is, is in part what led to that unfortunate fate for him. Very nice guy, very honest guy on the witness stand. Um, so uh, let's see, this happened in uh, May, early May of 2004. Within a month, Harold Fish was being prosecuted for, I believe, attempted murder, second-degree murder, intentional second-degree murder in this case. How could that be? There was no one else there, right? The victim, the aggressor, was dead. Harold Fish is telling his story of self-defense. What grounds did the prosecution have to bring a second-degree murder charge against Harold Fish? Well, they found a, a ballistics expert that said, well, based on the pattern of wounds, because there was bullet wound to uh, the aggressor's hand, and I believe arm, and then the bullet went into his chest uh, and killed him. He said this was a defensive wound. And therefore, the aggressor was actually acting in self-defense, and Harold Fish just, for whatever, no reason, decided to murder him. Now, of course, this is this is a parallel to the, the Michael Brown shooting, right? In Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot, supposedly executed by a police officer. Police officer, he'd already fought for his gun. And you still hear it today. Oh, Michael Brown, his hands were up. Well, his hands were up because he was charging at the police officer. His hands were up in a lunging attack, which is probably what happened here. I mean, I I wasn't there, right? But it's consistent with self-defense. And of course, Harold Fish, the defendant, is presumed to be innocent of the criminal charge of second-degree murder until self-defense is disproven beyond a reasonable doubt. If this were a probability of the evidence, preponderance of the evidence case, eh, that might be more ambiguous. But when you have two explanations, both supported by the evidence, one consistent with self-defense, the other consistent with secondary murder, and they're kind of at the same level, that's not, that's not guilt. That's acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. You didn't disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. But I think part of the issue here, frankly, was that Harold Fish had chosen to carry an unusual gun. I always urge all of you, your defensive tools should be as boring as possible. And 10 millimeter is not a boring caliber. It's just not. There's no police department that carries a 10 millimeter. The FBI tried it. And many of their agents, some, I wouldn't suggest this, but some, some people might suggest that it was largely their female agents, had difficulty with the recoil and flash of the 10 millimeter round because it's, it's quite a powerful round to shoot. Uh, so uh, ultimately, they shrank the 10 millimeter down until something they call the 40 Smith & Wesson, which is a much more anemic cartridge. And the FBI adopted that for a number of years and ultimately abandoned that, too, and went to the 9 millimeter. The 40 Smith & Wesson was for a time fairly popular with police, but I, I think virtually everyone's returned to the 9 millimeter now. Uh, so this was an unusual cartridge. And anything that's unusual about your, your chosen weapons of self-defense, it's it's a hook for the prosecutor to argue to the jury about. You're just, you're not a normal person. You're you're an abnormal person. You are carrying this super lethal caliber pistol. 
And I know that the prosecutor talked about it because when I read the appellate decisions on these cases, uh, the appellate courts noted noted that the prosecutor was arguing about the 10 millimeter here. Does does the caliber of the bullet really matter for in terms of the black letter or self-defense law? No. What difference does it make? If it's a 22, it's still deadly force. So you still have to meet the conditions for deadly force. And if you meet the conditions for deadly force, it doesn't matter what caliber it was. Makes no difference. Once you're in the deadly force bucket, there are no degrees of deadly force. It's all force readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. 22, 9 millimeter, 40 Smith & Wesson, 38 Special, take a step backwards, 10 millimeter, 44 Magnum, 5.56, five, doesn't matter. It's all deadly force. But is it something the prosecutor can talk to the jury about in an effort to make you look bad, that you were using a 10 or something else unusual? The same would apply if you were using a suppressor. Uh, it's just you're giving the prosecutor building blocks or a hook for a narrative of something other than innocent self-defense that may sell to a jury. Also, the prosecutor was able to keep out of evidence. Uh, the aggressor had a long history of, of, of violent conduct. And the prosecutor was able to keep that out from the jury. Now, normally, uh, it's not uncommon for an aggressor's character to not be admissible as evidence. The one exception and to not be admissible as evidence unless the defender was aware of it. If you're the defender and you know the person's violent, I mean, because you know them, uh, that's allowed to be admitted to evidence because it goes to your state of mind, right? Why were you fearful of a certain degree of harm? But if you didn't know it, if you didn't learn of this reputation or character for violence until after the act of self-defense, it could not have informed your decision-making. What it might have done is it might explain why that other person was so violent, was the initial aggressor in the fight. And one of the things you're claiming when you're acting in self-defense is the element of innocence, that you were not the initial aggressor. The other guy was the initial aggressor. Well, the state could always say, oh, all right, we don't want to argue about innocence. We're, we're going to stipulate that the defender was not the initial aggressor. We're going to attack his claim of self-defense on one of these other elements. But if the state is attacking innocence, if the state is attacking, telling the jury you, the defendant, were the innocent aggressor, that can open the door to getting the other parties, the actual aggressors, history of violence into the record. Because it's relevant to the question of who was the initial aggressor. In this case, I mean, that's exactly what Harold Fish was arguing. This guy charged me. He was the initial aggressor. And therefore, his, his character, his history of violence should come in. The trial court said no. And Harold Fish ultimately was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison at, when was this? Two years later. So now he's 59 years old. He's going to spend 10 years in prison. Uh, they appealed this conviction. And three years after the conviction, the Arizona Court of Appeals reversed his conviction. This would be 2009 now. So he spent three years as a convicted murderer in prison. Three of the, you know, how many more years of life do you have when you're in your 60s? We'd all like to think a lot, but we never know for whom the bell tolls, right? So he spent three of those years in prison. Uh, the Court of Appeals says, no, there were there were mistakes here. There were mistakes like the character evidence should have been allowed. And we're, we're reversing his uh, conviction. And um, also the legal standard for self-defense had changed in Arizona. So as we know, just four years ago, uh, Ohio was the last state that put the burden of proof on self-defense on the defendant to prove self-defense beyond, oh, sorry, prove self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence. The burden's on you to prove you acted in self-defense. 
every other state, the burden's on the state to disprove your claim of self beyond any reasonable doubt. And four years ago, Ohio, finally the last state, joined the majority. So now all 50 states, the state has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, when Harold Fish was tried, Arizona had the same standard as Ohio at that time. Arizona, they put the burden of self-defense on the defendant. Then it changed. The legal standard changed. And now for Harold Fish, now this was after his conviction, but now his conviction has been reversed. Now they want to try him again. The legal standard is now on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And the state thought about it and ultimately decided not to try him. So in 2009, Harold Fish finally gets out of prison. His conviction as a murderer has been reversed. And three years later, Harold Fish will be dead of cancer. So we got the last three years of his life back. But between 2004 and 2009, which he didn't know, of course, but were five of the last, what, eight years that he was ever going to have on God's great earth, he was either being prosecuted for murder or he was a convicted murderer in prison. So, yeah, you're out there panning for gold and you have to shoot somebody. Could that be your fate? Even worse. I mean, at least he got acquitted. He got his last three years out. Yeah, it could. It could. Now, if that person who confronted you while you were panning for gold was going to kill you. Well, then, you know, you, you, then you, you're compelled to go through what Harold Fish went through. Potentially, you're compelled to take the risk that could happen. But you have to be able to look in the mirror. And tell yourself, honestly a mirror in a prison cell that it was worth doing, even though this was the outcome. Now, if you had to do it again, you would do it again without hesitation, knowing this would be the outcome. All right. <laughs> I got through two whole questions in the first half hour, but that is the first half hour, folks. I got a bunch more questions to go. I don't know how many we'll actually get through, but uh, if you like that content and you're watching on YouTube, Rumble, or Twitter, your share of this show is just about to end because the second half of today's hour is going to be for Law of Self-Defense members only. If you're a Law of Self-Defense member, don't go anywhere. The show will continue. If you'd like more of this in our Platinum Q&A show for today, then you need to be a Law of Self-Defense member. You can do that right now for 99 cents. Open up another tab in your browser, lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. You'll be emailed instructions on how to access the members-only stream of today's show and, of course, get all the other benefits of membership that we offer. 99 cents, folks. And if you don't like it, if it's not for you, just, just cancel. No questions asked. It's fine. If you stay a member, and virtually everybody does, it's still dirt cheap. It's 30 cents a day, roughly, less than $10 a month. To be a Law of Self-Defense member, you can take care of that right now at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. So again, Law Self-Defense members, don't go anywhere. We've got more for you. But if you're watching on YouTube, this is the end of today's show for you. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. And that was the wrong button. Let me try this again. Take care, YouTube. It's been fun. And if you're watching on the Law Self-Defense Twitter channel, same to all of you. And again, I hit the wrong button. Okay, here we go. And finally, on Rumble. Take care, Rumble. It's been fun. <laughs>